Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Nick, for the introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, if you're not familiar with who I am, uh, you're probably not the only one. Um, I usually don't get too many opportunities to visit at East. Uh, I'm usually there at South with Elder. We're working alongside uh, him and the, the, the church plant there. In fact, uh, about a month or two ago, we had run out of uh, some communion supplies or little cups. Um, and so this was kind of a last minute. I forgot to order them. So I, I drove over here to East to get some from you guys and to take them back. And uh, so I started going through the kitchen and I could hear all these little whispers from the kids area saying, who is that and why is he destroying our kitchen? Um, like, hey guys, I actually work here. I've, I've worked here for like a year. Um, sorry, it's really weird. Uh, COVID's the worst. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're very excited to be here this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, preach God's words uh, here with us uh, today. Um, you know, there is a phenomenon which has taken place over the last decade or so. It began in the U.S., um, and it is absolutely 100% mental. It is, uh, and luckily for you guys, you have avoided for the most part the craziness of it all. Um, naturally, I'm talking about uh, the gender reveal. Um, 
Now, for what started as a uh, cute idea, we're going to get the parents together. We're going to cut a cake open and see if it's a blue baby or a pink baby. Um, you know, it's, it's really morphed into this kind of this, this craziness that is America. You know, America uh, with social media, but also just because Americans like to outdo everyone else in the whole, you know, known world. Um, they fully uh, just went crazy with it. In fact, I think we have a, a picture of, of that as well, just to kind of just... Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that child is going to hate her brother. Um, uh, you know, in the last year alone, I, I looked it up. Um, there's actually a lot of people who've died um, as a result of gender reveals, which is just so crazy. Just people go so insane with it. Uh, in fact, last year, there were some pilots that were flying their plane, and they, had, they were going to, you know, admit the smoke from their plane, and their plane crashed. Um, as a result of it, they both died. You had a father-to-be. Uh, who was so excited to, you know, bring in their child that he thought, I'm going to make my own device. And the device kind of ended up being a pipe bomb, and we won't go into that. Um, in California last year, there was a, you know, family who got together to celebrate. They, they thought, hey, we're going to shoot, uh, you know, a high explosive round at this Tannerite and explode it, which is, that's fun, right? Uh, but then it catches fire, and then it keeps going. They can't put out the blaze, and two months later, uh, it's still going on. There's over 22,000 acres that were burned, $8 million of damage that were done. A firefighter died from it. Americans have completely lost their mind. Um, and so today we're, we're looking at the good and better gender reveal here in Scripture today. I uh, hear, oh, the groans, the, the mini groans. Um, let, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, just be with us today. We just pray for your spirit just to saturate us, Lord. Uh, just allow your word to come alive and uh, just be ever-present, Lord, we pray. Amen. Uh, today, yeah, we're looking primarily at the kind of the response to Mary after she really allows uh, all of this news to soak in. But it's very important for us to, to look back uh, for the first few verses there from verses 5 through 25 to also get some backstory of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Um, so just for the little backstory, I'm, I'm going to read it. I'll just kind of summarize it for time. But um, Elizabeth and Zechariah were a, a righteous godly couple. Zechariah served in the temple there in Jerusalem, and his wife, we find out from the story that she is barren. She's unable to have children. She's uh, past the age of childbearing. She's already gone through menopause, and so she's just, she's unable to have any children. And so they had been praying about it for many years, and, and they didn't see God answer their prayer. Um, and so time keeps passing, keeps passing, and still nothing. And one day, Zechariah is there in the temple. He's serving at the, the altar of incense there. And while he is there, um, just boom, an angel of the Lord, it says, showed up. Gabriel shows up and says, don't be afraid. I've got some news for you. This is from the Lord. And he says that um, your prayers have been answered. God has heard your prayers for, for both you and your wife, Elizabeth. And you will have a child, a son, and this is going to be a very special son. He's going to be very, he's going to be very different. Um, he's going to prophetically proclaim who God is to the people there in, in the land. And he's actually going to be a precursor to Christ. He's going to prepare the people for what Christ uh, will say and what he will do. As we read this, the, the passage um, here today from Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And so, yes, in this story, we, we see that something really amazing happens. Uh, someone who is barren, unable to have children, the Lord blesses them and allows them to conceive a child. 
Um, but we also know from Scripture that this is not something that's, that's necessarily new. In fact, this, is, this, is, uh, this story is an old one. It's forged into the memory of ancient Israel. An elderly, righteous, barren couple believes in the promises of God and waits and waits and waits for the Lord to fulfill that promise. Of course, Abraham and Sarah, they'd waited for many years, decades, as they waited on uh, their child Isaac, this child of promise, to be born. And so, but we also see this again and again through Scripture. We see this not only through Sarah, but we also see it through Rebecca and Rachel and Samson's mother and, and Hannah as well. We see this throughout Scripture of, of godly women who are trusting in the Lord for a child. And yet something really new is happening here, you know, as, as we learn from, obviously, the story of, of Christ. And this, the, the old and familiar, the old and familiar is being eclipsed by the new and, honestly, the quite scandalous. Uh, because a son of promise is not going to be born out of the elderly. It's going to be born through the most unlikely and most impossible of circumstances through a virgin. And another story is going to be told here. Not of a great patriarch, not of a, not of a, not of a great prophet but of someone who's going to reclaim David's throne, someone who's going to uh, be God himself, Emmanuel. God is with us. And through Jesus, the old will pass away. And he's going to usher in through, through, through this new work, the long-awaited day of the Lord. So last week we went through as a church, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, where we, we learned that Mary is greeted by the same angel, Gabriel, and uh, this is the same one that met uh, Zechariah in the temple. And almost immediately after hearing the words of the angel in verse 38, it says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary's response here to Gabriel, it really, it really calls for our attention because when she says, let it be, she's not uh, just a passive participant. She's just going to allow this to happen to her. What she's truly saying is, let what you have said be done to me. She's an active participant in what God is doing. And that is the same thing that Christ calls us to do, to actively participate in what he is doing. And although she doesn't fully understand what is taking place here, um, in the sense that she knows exactly how this is going to play out, how this is all going to work itself out. She does kind of walk out this kind of semi-comprehending surrender. She, she trusts in the Lord and his character, even though she doesn't have the next steps completely laid out in front of her. Because she knows that at the end of the day, she can trust the character of God. Because she knows that God is the one who can, he will keep his promises and Mary for us is really the epitome of true faith because she knows that she can trust in the Lord for something that she doesn't uh, fully comprehend, doesn't fully see in front of her, yet she knows that she can trust the Lord based on who he is and his character. And so that's something we must soak in as a people of God today, that we must fully believe in God's promises, especially uh, when we lack clarity. We must fully believe in God's promises even when we lack clarity. You know, Mary... Um, here is truly showing that those, those who follow Christ, how to do that. And that's with complete trust. Um, I can think of many times in my life where I've felt the Spirit, in, you know, encouraging me to uh, do something or say something. But oftentimes what happens is I don't know how to get there. 
Um, I, I feel like I'm at point A and the, the Lord has asked me to get to point Z, uh, but there's B, C, D, there's all these other points that have to be accomplished before I get to Z. Like I've got to go through that process. And so there's this process that I believe God does for all of us through that, um, where he stirs our hearts for something. And I'm reminded of Habakkuk 2.4 that says this, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's what God is, is doing through us. He's, he's allowing us to nurture this relationship of trust and belief where we are, we are in this uh, kind of the zone of, Lord, I don't know how this is all going to p- p- play out. I don't really know how this is all going to work itself out, but I do know that you're trustworthy. I do know that I can trust in your good and perfect character. I know that you have the best for me in that regard. And so I'm going to trust you, even if this is going to be hard, even though, even though this seems uh, impossible to get through, I'm going to trust in you in this. And so maybe the Lord is asking you to do something in this season that you're in. Uh, maybe he's challenged you to foster or adopt a child, to partner with groups that are trying to tackle sex trafficking, um, to get involved in church planning, to uh, help out at the, the, the larder, to start a nonprofit uh, ministry, not-for-profit ministry, to, to share your faith with a coworker. There's so many different things. And oftentimes, again, we don't have the full details of how this is going to play out. Can we trust in God in that process? And maybe today you're, you're really just struggling with faith in general. Maybe you would say, you know, my faith is wavering. I, I, I struggle with what you're saying here today. Let me just remind you what, what Christ himself said. He talked about having this, this mustard, seed, mustard seed, which is just this, this small little speck. Just trust me, this little bitty, tiny little bit and see where this grows. So if we can just trust him with that little bitty speck of faith and just let our prayer be, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me, as I, help me to trust in you in greater measure. Help me to just, just lean in on you in this season. And Mary here, she believed that the words of Gabriel were true. She believed the word of God here. And in the truest sense, Mary was, was kind of like the first Christian um, in the essence that she, you know, she was the first to know about God, really truly understanding that he is taking on flesh. And she believed here, Emmanuel, God is with us. She's believing it. And in her belief, the first thing she decides to do is I'm going to make a journey to visit my relative Elizabeth. And so she decides to embark on this journey. So it, this is not across town. Uh, this is uh, from, from Nazareth to just outside of Jerusalem where, where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. This is about 80 to 100 miles. Um, so this is kind of like going from uh, Belfast to Dublin. It's, it's something that would take a little bit of time to go through, three or four days probably, rocky, hilly terrain. And I, I just imagine kind of what was going through Mary's mind. Um, she was probably saying, Mary, did you know the whole time? You know, she, she was constantly trying to think, how is this, how is this working itself? She, how, how's this working itself out? She was thinking of what Gabriel had said. She was thinking of um, um, the Old Testament, I'm sure. And how, how, does, how does this child, how does this play in with what Isaiah says here and, and, and all of this? And I'm sure she was, like every parent, she was wondering, am I a good enough parent to take care of this child that I've been given? And so Elizabeth and Mary finally uh, meet with one another. But before they do, I just want you to think just briefly on what does Mary know about Elizabeth here? And what does Elizabeth know about Mary? Because if you, if you kind of just skimming through this, you, you, you can kind of jump over this. But it's very important for us to understand what each of the ladies were thinking in this moment, what they knew in this moment. Um, because the Holy Spirit just kind of brings everything together in a very powerful way. 
Elizabeth, um, all she knows really is that uh, her son is going to be a great prophet and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. That's all she knows. She, she's excited about that. She's overjoyed with that. Um, but she doesn't know who the, who the Lord is going to be. She doesn't know who the mother of her Lord is going to be. She doesn't have these details. And what, what, do we, what does Mary know about Elizabeth here? Um, in verses 36 and 37, um, it says this, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Mary, she's, she's really going in faith to visit her cousin here. And uh, at, you know, when they finally meet and they finally have, have that chance to greet one another, um, it's very cool what happens. In verse 40, it says, She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth here, who was now six months pregnant. So you have to think of Mary from, from her perspective. The angel had told her, your, your relative Elizabeth, she's pregnant. She's six months pregnant. And so she goes and sees Elizabeth and like, oh, you have a baby bump. You're six months pregnant. Like this is the first time where she is able to actually see it with her own eyes. And you can just imagine, especially after the journey she's been on over the last few days and everything that she's experienced, that she is just, her faith, just, she just takes a giant leap of faith uh, where, where she, or giant uh, growth in her faith and trust in the Lord. Like, yes, this is true. What, what was said to me was true. And now I know, you know, again, I can again trust in the promises of God because I know that he is gonna uh, continue to carry out what he has promised me. And then in verse 41, um, it says that Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and John in utero just really just jumps like, he, he, he leaps for joy because the Lord is there with him. And Elizabeth here, she's reminded of what Zechariah had told, uh, or what Gabriel had told Ze- Zechariah in um, verse 15. He said, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so Elizabeth here, she's, she's full of the Holy Spirit. She, she has discernment. She has insight. You know, it's obviously normal for um, a woman who's six months pregnant to have a baby, you know, jostle and kick. That's, that's, that's a normal thing. Everyone would know that. But because of her discernment that she has, she knows this is different. This was something very much different. And so she knows in that moment that this is the Lord. In fact, in verses 42 through 45, she says this, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth, in this moment, again, you have to remember the story here, what's going on. Elizabeth is so, uh, is experiencing so much inner joy because she has waited for decades for this child. And yet in this moment, she's, she's swept up with a greater joy of what God is doing here through Mary. Um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth here is able to recognize, because you also have to understand that Mary, is, Mary does not have a baby bump. Uh, Mary uh, is maybe three to five days upon conceiving Christ. Like this, she, she's not showing it all. And so the Holy Spirit really here with Elizabeth says, you're carrying the Lord. The, you how blessed am I that the Lord is here with me, that the mother of my Lord is, is even here with me, how overjoyed I am. And you can just see this, this moment of just pure happiness, celebration, thankfulness, and praise that begins to burst from both of these ladies. Um, and Mary here, you know, insignificant Mary, teenage Mary, 
um, impoverished Mary, unwed Mary in this moment just has, ah, man, she has that moment of pure joy. As we get into the Magnificat here, she, gets, she just has a moment of pure joy and excitement because this is the first time I believe that she really fully grasped the fullness of what's happening here. You can kind of, if you, as you're reading through the, the, this, this section of scripture, there's, there's no excitement or joy when she meets Gabriel and she hears the word of the Lord. She just kind of accepts it. All right, I mean, this is, this is what's been chosen for me. I'm willing to, to do this. But the, in this moment, her faith is just overwhelmed with the goodness of God and she just, she gets it. It clicks, everything, all the, all the prophecy, all the, all the things that have been happened to her, the things that she's seen with her own eyes, everything comes together and she celebrates the Lord because now she knows that the supernatural is, is becoming natural here. The uh, immortal is becoming mortal. The unapproachable is approaching us. The invulnerable is becoming vulnerable. The strong one is entering into utter weakness. The, the one with all the riches is coming into the world with nothing. And so she gets it. She gets it. And in verse 46, she says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich that he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to, their, to his offspring forever. Um, in this moment, she has... Um, it says that her soul magnifies the Lord. Uh, the song is, uh, the song of Mary is called the Magnificat, which is basically just, it's the Latin word for magnify. She wants to just begin to declare the greatness of God because she gets it. She understands what's going on. And she gives him lofty praise here. And I'm, I'm reminded of Psalm 34 verses one through three, which says this, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. As we continue on this morning, I think it's very helpful for us to ask this question. Are we praising God for what he's doing and what he has done in our lives? Are we taking a moment in, our, in the busyness of our lives, in the busyness of this, this Advent season, this Christmas season, are we praising him for what he's doing and what he has done in our lives? Um, in verses 47 and 48 here, it says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. Um, Mary here knows that she's going to have, because of her son, that she's going to have great notoriety and publicity, that she's going to... Um, just because of her being the mother of the Lord, she knows that this is going to bring something for her. Um, and she's going from obscurity, as it says here, um, he looked on the humble estate of his servant. And it says, behold, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. Here, the, the kind of the understanding of blessed is, um, if you're understanding verse 48, it says, um, the humble estate 
And so it's basically saying, I had nothing and I'm, now I'm blessed. Now I have kind of everything. Everyone's going to call me blessed because now I have, I have really everything. I, I have the Lord. I have, I have this moment. And she just sees the character, the mercy, the goodness of God in her life. Um, you know, there's, there's something very typical in, in, in uh, you know, what I've noticed is in Irish culture is, you know, when someone is really winning in life here, um, I mean, really winning, doing, doing an amazing thing. Maybe they uh, won the Nobel Prize or they've won an Olympic medal or, or something like that. Um, the news crew will go out and they don't interview those people. Uh, what, what do they do? They, they go and interview the mom and dad, right? That's just what they do. They go and then they, you know, the parents will always be standing outside and they'll have this big grin on their face and like, oh, we're so proud of our, our wee lad. And they just have, you know, this moment, this special moment. They're just beaming with pride over their son. And it's the same way here. She just, she's, she knows that this is going to bring a lot of uh, awareness to her. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I believe as we're looking through these passages here, this section right here, I think, it's, I think there's some things that we can really glean from, we can really take away, um, regardless of whether you come from a Protestant background or whether you come from a Catholic background. I think it's very helpful for us to uh, kind of spend some time here for a moment. Uh, for, for Protestants, there's this kind of this weird fear with Mary, if I can be so bold, um, be, because of its connotations to Catholicism. Um, which, is, which is weird because we, we don't read, you know, Moses and David and get really nervous about becoming Jewish. Like it's, but we have this kind of this, I don't know, we kind of keep Mary kind of at arm's length a little bit, which is, which is it's again, because it's silly because I think we have something to really learn from Mary. Um, she's more than a compliant womb. She's more than just somebody who's willing to do something um, just because it needed to be done. It's, it's more than that. And verse 48 says, all generations are going to call me blessed. Um, there's no one that knows Jesus probably better than his mom, Mary. Um, we, we likely wouldn't have had the accounts of Matthew and Luke if it wasn't for Mary. Uh, Mary has something to teach us. She has something to model for us. She has something to point us towards. And as we spend some time, if we can just take a moment and just look at the faith of Mary in the midst of all this, that she's willing to trust in the Lord so willingly and so openly, I think that that just, that, I think we just need, as Protestants, I think we just need to spend some time there. Uh, for Catholics, if you come from a Catholic background, I just want to, again, focus our attention to verse 47 here. It says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Um, Mary knows that she's not perfect um, because only perfect people need a Savior. Only perfect people need a Savior. And this is, we're not going to spend too much time here, but this is difficult to balance with kind of Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception that believes that Mary was born without original sin, that, you know, as, you know, through, through her mother Anne and this, all of this, but only imperfect people need a Savior. Mary would agree, agree with that. She agrees with that here. She says that so, says so in this verse. And as we skip ahead to verse 49, it says, it reads that God is the Holy One. Holy is his name. Again, she's not pointing to her holiness. She's pointing to uh, the Holy One. She's talking to about Christ. Uh, she's probably familiar with Isaiah th- uh, 43, 11, which says, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Uh, later on in, in the Gospel of Luke, when we get to chapter uh, 11, we get to verses 27 
through 28, it says this, as Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you sucked. But Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Um, essentially what Christ is saying here in this moment is that being related to me, that doesn't give you salvation. That doesn't give you a free pass with me. Um, perfect church attendance doesn't, doesn't make it with me. Um, you know, serving in the kids' ministry, as great as that is, doesn't really, that doesn't really uh, give you um, that salvation. Morality doesn't get you there. Being my disciple does. Following me, trusting me, uh, relying on me as your means of grace and salvation. That's, that's what gets you salvation here. And I was, as I was preparing this, this message this week, I, um, I was just kind of struck by the fact that every child is completely dependent on their parents, completely dependent. Uh, they, they, they need their parents for, for shelter, for nourishment, for clothing, for love. These are all things that a child needs. But I believe Mary was the first human in history who was completely dependent on their child, completely dependent on their child. And that's something for us to also meditate as we're thinking on Mary, that she had the faith that she's a, you know, basically she's carrying this child, but she also knows that this child is, is her means of grace. This is her means of grace, not just for the whole world, but for her herself, that God is my savior, that God is doing all of this right now for me. It just boggles the mind. And as we continue on with Mary's song here, we, we find this transition that kind of takes place uh, where she's celebrating God in verses uh, 46 through 48. She's celebrating God for what he has done for me personally, what God has done for Mary, but then she shifts to what God has done for others. 49 and 50, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name in 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Um, while Mary knows that God has been good to her personally, she also is very aware of the fact that God is, his goodness is not limited just to her, but to everyone in this room and to the millions of generations past, present, and future who could also tell the same stories of God's mercy for them. Because the, her eye is not on herself, it's on the constancy of God, on the character of God. And as we dive further into the Magnificat, uh, we, we know that it's not necessarily an explanation of who God is that we see here, but rather what God does, that he remembers his people, he visits his people, that he compassions, that God rescues, that God saves. Um, biblical scholar James Edwards uh, refers to the Magnificat as this. He wrote this, the essence of the Magnificat does not consist in its particular language or figures of speech but in its revolutionary blueprint of divine favor. It is a hymn not of the proud, but of the powerless, not of just deserts, but of unexpected grace, not of a world fully controlled and determined by human powers, but overturned by divine comedy. God is the subject of nearly every verb, and the verbs are all transitive. They do not declare who God is, but what God does as the powerful deliverer of the needy and the oppressed. God does not turn away from want and oppression, but actually towards both in compassion and rescuing intervention. In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high for sinners to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations. God who is high becomes low. 
He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman and calls her blessed. The Almighty gives mercy to those who fear him and scatters the strong, the proud, the rich, and while filling the hungry and the needy with all good things. Uh, let, me again, let me again just say that Mary is more than a compliant womb here. She is someone who, though very young in her faith and just very young in general, she has spent time with God. She knows who God is. She has experienced uh, his, his goodness, his character. She has seen his promises. She knows his heart for her. And she knows that God's about to change the world upside down because of this child that she's bearing. As she shifts to this final portion of the Magnificat here, we're going to look at verses 51 through 55. It says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts uh, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So, so uh, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Uh, as we kind of go towards the end of, of this section of the Magnificat, I think it's also important for us to ask ourselves, are we aware of God's handiwork in the world? Are we aware of God's handiwork in the world? Are we paying attention to what God is up to? What is he, what is he doing? Um, are we praying for that kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? You know what that looks like? Um, yes, it looks like Luke chapter 4 where Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah and, and read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners recovery of the sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, yes, he has done that, but also in his kingdom, the kingdom here on earth, what he is doing is that he is giving, uh, he's creating a kingdom where the poor are lifted up, where the weak are lifted up, and, and that the rich are actually finding the insecurity in their wealth, that the humble are promoted, and the, the arrogant, the self-reliant, the prideful are demoted. And that the powerful recognize that they are powerless in the hands of the mighty God. And this can be a very challenging portion of scripture to get through. In fact, as I was researching this this week, um, there were several governments at some times that just basically tried to wide out this section of scripture. That basically this was illegal for them to preach through this section of scripture uh, because of fear of what this passage could do if it got into people's hands. Um, it is offensive and it is scary for those who are in power. Um, in this moment in time as, as well, we, we see the up down, upside down kingdom already at play here. We see Zechariah. This is the guy who is supposed to be um, the spiritual leader. Like he's the priest there in Jerusalem. He's, he's serving in the house of God. And what happens to him? He, ultimately, he proves faithless. We learned that because of his lack of faith, uh, the angel says, you're not going to speak until this child is born. And so he, he's the one who proves faithless. But then you find these two women Mary, this, this humble servant girl, a virgin, and you have Elizabeth who has gone decades without having a child and has longed for that, who's been cast aside for so many years, has not been able to probably be a part of the same circles and, and all of that. We find both of these women living in full faith and speaking with the voice of a prophet here. 
God's already beginning to kind of turn that kingdom from a very upside down from that very early part of the story here. And so Mary knows also that the winds of grace are on the move through this child. And how will the world respond to him? Are we paying attention to that? How will we respond to him? Um, you know, as, as you know, this, the same wind that carries a sailboat to its destination, that same wind, strong enough gust, will crash it onto the rocks and sink it. The Spirit of God is on the move. His, 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 the winds of his grace are on the move. How are we going to respond? How will humanity respond? How will we respond? Will we, will we re- receive it? Or we will, will, will we reject it? Because if you respond to God with humility and fear, you're going to find mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, forgiveness upon forgiveness. But if you respond to, to his offer of grace with ridicule, with apathy, with, with self-reliance, you're going to find yourself dashed upon the rocks. So, so how do we respond to this, this section of Scripture? It's, it's, it's difficult for us to get through. I think as... Um, as a church, just thinking through this, we have to understand uh, Christ's holistic mission here that's outlined in the Magnificat. Is he, was he here to save sinners? Absolutely. But it's more than that. It was to revolutionize society. It was for us to point ahead to the promised time when God is going to make all things right again. The early church, they were rich in good deeds. They, they embodied a, a ministry of social righteousness. They shared their wealth. They insisted that faith sh- uh, show itself in caring for others. Um, deacons were established to coordinate deed ministries both inside and outside the church. I'm, I'm excited for, for what Village is in the process of doing with kind of organizing that and, and getting that kind of moving forward with deacons here at Village East. Excited for that. Uh, the, the early church gave the poor and the marginalized a place at the table. They exalted society's lowest members. They, they, they raised the position of women in that culture. They, they freed slaves. They, pervert, they preserved the dignity of the poor. As a church community, we, we should look for ways to work with God and be his hands and feet uh, for those both nearby and around the world. I'm excited for what Village is doing. I'm excited for, for our partnerships with Walkway, with, with, with Larder, with, with all these different things. But I'm also asking us this question, what are some, what, what else can we do? What other things can we do? Not just as a church, but how, how as we as individuals, as, as us as individuals, how can we look for ways? God, what's a way that I can help to do this? What's a way that I can serve the poor, serve the needy in my community? And individually, um, I believe that there's, there's some other things that we can do. As followers of Christ, we must, um, we must really just take a moment and look in the mirror and begin to ask ourselves this question because the scriptures are completely full of so many references to um, caring for the poor, caring for the needy, caring for the refugee, caring for the immigrant, caring for the widow. Um, and oftentimes, we're okay for the most part walking around as if God, um, you know, if God is so concerned with these groups, oftentimes why do we feel so unconcerned? If God is so concerned with these groups of people, why oftentimes do we get so busy and, and so distanced and so unconcerned? Because the gospel of grace is always going to lift up the poor. It's always going to dignify 
the poor because the world, the world out there tells the poor, you know, you're uneducated, you can't read, you, you, you lack funds, you, you lack the network, you lack the connections, you lack that upward mobility, you can't provide for your children, you're worthless. Um, religion comes along and says, you know, the good, the people with character, those are the people who find God and, and that if you don't have those, you can't find God. But Christianity turns all of that kind of on its head. It says that, salva- that salvation is a supernatural act of grace. Um, the gospel says that good people, the decent people, the moral people, the rich, those with upward, upward mobility, with connections, are every bit as lost as drug dealers, as prisoners, as murderers, as prostitutes and pimps. And if you are a drug dealer, if you're a murderer, if you're a prostitute and a pimp, and you put your faith in Christ, you get a seat at the table with Christ in heaven. And that lifts up the poor. That lifts them, that dignifies the poor, that gives them a seat at the table. Because their security is found in Christ rather and, and, and in him, and their identity is wrapped up in him rather than their, the class that they belong to, the wealth that they may have accumulated, their neighborhood that they belong to, or the, the sins that they commit. But it also, at the same time, it lifts up the poor. The gospel also can pull down the rich as well because the gospel shows the poor that they are no worse than anyone else, but it also shows the middle class and the wealthy that they are no better. Uh, we must address the way that we think about the poor, about the needy. We must see how is God, God's hand at work and partner with that. It's not progressive for us to do that. It's biblical for us to do that. It's the right thing for us to do. Let's look for opportunities as a church to continue to, to partner. Let's look for what, what, what other groups in the community uh, are doing things that we can partner with as a church and as, as, as individuals. What are some things that we can do? Because let me just ask you this question as well as we kind of close this morning. If this church tomorrow shut its doors, would BT4 notice? Would BT4 notice? Would, would this community know and be sad that our doors are closed? I think, I feel, I feel, I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad about that. I feel good about that. But with the whole of BT4, there may be some neighbors and some, some, some things that we've kind of built up. And we're, we're in the process of doing that right now. But would BT4 notice? Would they be sad? Would they be disappointed? Oh, man. They were doing so many good things. Um, I'm reminded of... I'm going to go here. Uh, First Peter 2, 2 verse 13. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You see Mary here, she can praise God. She can praise God for all of the work that, that, that she has seen him do through her life. But I, I, I want to challenge us today that live such lives that everyone else is praising God because of the work that we're doing here in our church, the, the work that God is doing in our hearts, that we get a burden and a passion and a desire to bring God's goodness to all the people in this community. Let's pray.